So Genesis chapter 40, if you haven't already opened, or 42, if you haven't already opened your Bibles, go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 42. Sunday nights, believe it or not, it's my uh, intention. I've never actually uh, verbalized it in church, but it's my intention. Genesis to Revelation, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the entire Bible. And I know what you're thinking when you hear that. You're thinking, Gare, man, at the pace you're going, it's going to be like 50 years to get to Revelation, you know? Uh, maybe so. If that's true, it'll be a well-spent 50 years. But, you know, we're going to, Lord willing, we'll, we'll be picking up the pace here pretty soon. You know, right now we're just going to look at, tonight we're just going to look at Genesis 42. Because, you know, there's just so much stuff here. It's so rich. So much to uh, mine out. You know, you don't want to, uh, you know, leave anything out. It's so hard. But um, uh, Joseph, we've been studying Joseph's life. He's such an uh, incredible picture of Jesus Christ found in the Old Testament. And I pray that you're enjoying the study. And more importantly, I, my prayer is that God would be speaking to your heart, speaking to our hearts. And you'll remember last week we saw Pharaoh had a dream that none of his wise men, none of the magicians were able to interpret it. So um, as they're discussing this, the chief uh, butler, he speaks to Pharaoh. He says, you know, I remember my faults this day when Pharaoh was angry with his servants, you know, both me and the, the baker, you put us into prison. You know, each of us had a dream one night and there was a, a young Hebrew man there in prison and he interpreted the, our dreams for us. And it happened just like he said, you know, he said that I would be restored to my position and uh, the baker would be hanged. And it just happened like he said. And so uh, they sent for Joseph they cleaned him up, they shaved him down, they put a, a new clothes on him, and they brought him in front of Pharaoh. And Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream, telling him that <clears throat> the two dreams that he had, they're just actually one dream, it's one thing. You know, seven years of famine, followed by seven years, uh, sorry, seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And that famine would be a worldwide famine. And then Joseph uh, then goes ahead and gives them the wisdom they need to um, meet that situation. And in response to the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream and the wisdom given to them by um, Joseph, Joseph, uh, Pharaoh exalts Joseph to basically a position of governor over the entire uh, land of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh uh, in regards to power. And Egypt is the most powerful nation in the world at the time. And this is where we left off last week. So pick it up. Genesis 42 verse 1. <clears throat> when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? You know, there's this famine in the land. Jacob says to his boys, why, why do you look at one another? Now, sometimes I read this and in my mind, I see a replay of an old cartoon. Two guys stranded on a desert island, and they're looking at each other. And, and in, in light of this famine, one looks over at the other, and he sees him turn into a hot dog. And then the other guy looks over at him, and he turns into, you know, a roasted chicken, you know. But that's not what's going on. In, in biblical terminology, we would say that that would be the wrong interpretation of what we're reading. But as I said in the introduction, this famine has come into the surrounding area of Egypt. 
right, including Canaan. And as you're aware, there's a very important family uh, down there in Canaan. It's the family uh, that God has promised to bring the Messiah of the world through. He's going to bring the Messiah into the world through this family. And at this time, Genesis 42, we're probably one or two years into the famine. And we also want to keep in mind, Jacob is very wealthy. Jacob has prospered wildly uh, under the hand of God's blessing on his life. And at this point in the famine, Jacob and his family has probably depleted all of their resources, and they've run out of food. You know, that's how severe this famine is. And we need to, to take note here that God's people are not immune to hardship or difficulties. You know, it's just the way it is. And at this point, all the surrounding region is aware that there's grain there in Egypt. And all of uh, Jacob's boys know it. And so he kind of prods them here to try to get them going. He says, hey, you guys are just standing around looking at each other. You know, it's obvious what we need to do. So get going. Go down to Egypt and buy some grain. Now, maybe there's a reason why the boys hesitated. Maybe, you know, it could be it's very likely that, you know, they wouldn't initiate that kind of, um, you know, thing. They wouldn't move like that, being in a patriarchal society that they're in, unless their father commanded them to do that. That could be why. It might be that Egypt is kind of a bad memory for them. And maybe that's why they hesitated. It may be that, you know, it may have been a reminder to them of what they had done to Joseph, selling him into uh, slavery, selling him to that group of Ishmaelites that took him down to Egypt and you know, him winding up in slavery. We're going to see that what the boys did to Joseph has actually been a terrible, terrible burden in their lives over the years. And it seems to be something that's actually fresh in their mind, fresh in their heart, just as if it happened yesterday. So their hesitation may be a result of the guilt that they're experiencing over their past sin in regards to Joseph. So verse 2 says, And he said, Indeed, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt, so go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. Jacob com uh, com uh, comments here, again, it, it, his comments give us an idea of how severe this famine is. Sometimes as citizens of the United States, I mean, we don't really understand it. I mean, we think we're starving to death when we open the refrigerator and we don't see something that's appealing. You know, we can think, you know, we have no food, uh, you know, when we look into the refrigerator and there's nothing there that we're looking for. Like, we have nothing to eat. You know, we can feel like we're starving to death when we haven't eaten in a few hours. Uh, we have such a readily available and affordable food supply in this country. Sure, you know, most of it's genetically modified, filled with preservatives and very unhealthy to eat, but there's a lot of it. You know, we don't go hungry. But you need to try to imagine, if you can, your survival depends on traveling to another country to purchase grain so that you and your family won't die. So again, it gives us some 
idea of just how severe this famine is at this point. In verse 3, so Joseph's 10 brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. The same 10 brothers who hated Joseph enough to kill him, but instead they sold him into slavery. The same 10 brothers that stripped him of his coat of many colors and threw him into that pit. The ones that sold him to the Ishmaelites sold him to them and took him down to Egypt. It's the same 10 brothers now that are sent to make this 250-mile journey down to Egypt. In verse 4, we read, But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with him, with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. Benjamin is probably 21 to 25 years old at this point. And I think it's entirely possible that Jacob doesn't send Benjamin with his brothers for a couple different reasons. One, Benjamin is the only surviving son of his beloved wife, Rachel. He's a Joseph's full blood brother, and Jacob doesn't want to see anything happen to him. Maybe the second reason might be it's very likely that Jacob is a little suspicious of these boys. I mean, he's certainly aware of their nature, probably seen, probably witnessed how many times they uh, exercise hatred towards Joseph. So he's not willing to put Benjamin in, uh, in their hands, put Benjamin at risk to travel 250 miles with them. Verse 5, and the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So the 10 brothers of Joseph, they start out, they're headed to Egypt. And you know what? They don't need any directions on how to get to Egypt. They just have to follow the crowd of people that are also headed to Egypt to buy grain. I mean, there's just this long line of people that are headed down there. In verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. And it was he who sold to all the people of the land. So it appears that Joseph is not entrusting this task. Uh, he's not entrusting the sell and distribution of the grain to anyone else. He's personally taking charge of the sell of the grain. Or at the very least, he's exercising personal oversight of the sell. You know, it, it has to last seven more, seven years, five more years, six more years. So he's maintaining a very tight, strict control over it. Anyone who wanted to buy grain had to go to Joseph, we read. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their face to the earth. So it happens. While Joseph is selling grain to just a multitude of people, one day he looks up and he sees his ten brothers have come to purchase grain from him. And what do they do? They bow down to him. You know what? The Hebrew word here for bow down, it's the same Hebrew word uh, that's used when Joseph describes his dream when their sheaves bowed down to his. Joseph must just be staggered at this point. I mean, he's standing there in unbelief. Just, just imagine what this day must have been like for Joseph. And we don't want to miss the lesson here. It's very important. God's dreams and promises that he's given to each one of us, they come true in our life. God's promises in our lives are sure and steadfast, and they'll come to pass in our life. I mean, it's something that we can just 
bank on. It's something you can count on. Just like the sun is going to come up tomorrow, tomorrow morning. God gave those promises to Joseph so very long ago. And for such a long time, they looked like they were completely impossible to come to pass. Like it's never going to happen. But even if God has to move the entire world to keep just one of his promises, he'll do that. God keeps his promises. His promises to you and to I, they're going to come to pass. They're never going to fail, just like they came to pass for Joseph's life. He's never failed to keep a single promise that he's made. Not to you, not to Joseph, not to anyone for that matter. God keeps his promises. So Joseph's brothers, they bow down before Joseph. Their face to the ground is a sign of great respect. And verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. They're probably a little older, a little grayer, a little heavier, but they probably hadn't changed much. Have you seen baby pictures of someone? that you thought, man, they haven't changed one bit. You know, they look exactly the same. If you haven't, I encourage you to go to Lopez's house. Look at Caton's baby picture, man. I mean, exactly the same. You know what? The other kids, they've changed, but Caton, I mean, he could produce a, his driver's license. And like, oh, yeah, sure, that's you. Yeah, of course. Exactly the same. And that's what's happened here. They haven't changed much. But Joseph, on the other hand, he's changed a lot right? I mean, just the hardships take, have probably taken a physical toll on Joseph. But you know what? He's also now dressed in a, as an Egyptian uh, official, completely shaved, head to toe, dark eyeliner on, around his eyes the way the Egyptians did it. He's wearing this wig like we talked about last week. He has these nice clothes on. He has this gold chain on around his neck. And on top of all of that, you know, the boys, they're not thinking they're going to run into Joseph anytime soon, right? So they're not even really paying attention. But it says, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Now, remember back in Genesis 37, verses 2 and 4, Joseph was sent by his dad to check up on his brothers. They weren't, um, you know, uh, being very responsible with the flock. And remember when he came to them in, the, in his coat of many colors, it says that they couldn't speak peaceably to him. You know what? They spoke roughly to him. And people might think right here, you know, they might ask, why doesn't Joseph reveal himself to his brothers? And, and they might be tempted to think, well, it's because Joseph is being vengeful. He's going he's gonna to get a pound of flesh now. But that's not true. Before there can be recon reconciliation, there has to be repentance. Before there can be reconciliation, there has to be a change of heart. A change of heart has to take place. Before there can be reconciliation with the Lord, we need to repent of our sins. We need to change our heart in regards to the direction that we're headed. And we need to turn from our sins and head towards God. So Joseph is going to test his brothers <clears throat> to see if there is a change, to see if they have repented. Joseph is going to give his brothers, it is true, he's going to give them a little taste of their own medicine throughout their encounter, but not to get back at them. 
That's not the purpose. It's to test to see if there's been a change in their heart, you know, to see if there's been a change of their character. So Joseph pretends that he doesn't know them. And it says, then he said to them, where do you come from? Again, we need to remember these guys have come to Egypt to get food for their families in order that they can continue to live. That has to be in the back of our mind. And with that in the back of the mind, these guys, you know, when they come to the one guy who's in charge of selling the grain and he speaks roughly to them, you know, he seems like they've taken a dislike towards him. They must have thought to themselves, this is not starting out very well. And they must have been a little confused. It doesn't make any sense to them why this powerful official doesn't like them. And it, we read, and they said, they answer his question from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. 22 years or so has gone by since they've seen Joseph. Joseph's 39, 40 years old. Uh, and, and don't forget, he's dressed like an Egyptian. He looks like, very much like an Egyptian. He's speaking Egyptian, uh, the Egyptian language fluently. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them as they bowed down to him. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Now, hearing this, these guys are probably just dumbfounded. They're speechless right here. You know, they're probably thinking, what is going on? What is, what is happening here? This guy was nice to everyone in front of us that bought grain from him. You know, what did we do? And when we read this story that Joseph accuses them of being the spies, we think, yeah, okay. And we just read on. But you know what? It's a lot more than just part of the story. And we need to recognize what's going on here. It's a capital crime to come into another land as a spy. They have the second most powerful man in the world accusing them of being a spy. Accusing them of coming into Egypt and spying out the land. And that's a crime that's punishable by death. And we need to see it from the brother's perspective to understand how bad this situation is. Uh, these guy, this guy is not only withholding grain from us, which we need for our family to survive, right? Without it, we're not going to live. We're not going to see uh, many more years. But now our lives are in jeopardy. So this is a real serious situation. And it's going to get worse. Verse 10. And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We're all all one man's sons. We're honest men. Sure, we're willing to throw our brother into a pit and sell him into slavery to make a buck. But who is it? You know, I mean, you can't hold that against us, right? Other than that, we're pretty much more or less honest men. But that's not the truth. They're not honest men. They're deceitful men. You know, they sold Joseph into slavery and they lied to their father. And they've been living with the lie for the last 20 years even in light of this overwhelming sorrow and grief that has brought upon their father, 
they weren't honest men at all. They never came clean and told their dad what had really happened with Joseph. We're all one man's sons. We're honest men. We're servants and not spies. And Joseph is not going to let them off the hook that easy. Verse 12, but he said to them, no, but you've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today. And one is no more. Joseph has not had any news regarding his family for 22 years. So in this one sentence, he learns a couple of really important things. First, he learns his brother is still alive. The, the 10 other brothers haven't killed him or thrown him into a pit like they did to Joseph. You know, And that must have been a terrible concern for jo Joseph all during these many years. And the second thing he learns is that his father is still alive. This also is very important to Joseph to, le to learn. You know, he loves his dad. And he's missed him terribly over the last 22 years. Verse 14, but Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you saying, you are spies. And in this manner, you shall be tested. Again, he accuses them. And now he admits to them that he's going to test them. But by the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place until your youngest brother comes here. I think... In Joseph's humanness, he must be praying right now saying, Lord, give me wisdom. You know, how am I to handle this situation? Your word that you've spoken to me, those dreams, those visions, they've all come true. What am I supposed to do now? He's praying, I'm sure. And the first thing he says is, none of you are leaving until your younger brother comes here. Then I'll know that the story you're telling me is true. Verse 16 Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you're a spies. So here Joseph gives them an opportunity to, for them to prove that they are honest men, that they aren't spies. He says, I'm going to keep nine of you. I'll send one of you uh, back to bring your younger brother here. You know, he says, I don't, really, I don't really trust you, so this will be proof to me that you're not lying. Verse 17, so he put them all together in prison three days. Why do you think three days? You know, it's probably because Joseph was in the pit. He was in that empty cistern for three days. And I think Joseph is, is purposely now trying to stir up old memories for his brothers. Joseph is trying to cause them to reflect on how they treated him. Verse 18, then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live for I fear God. Joseph speaking through an interpreter, he says, I fear Elohim. I mean, that must have just blown those guys away, right? I mean, what were they thinking when they hear Joseph say that through an interpreter? You know, I wonder if it caused them to reflect on their lack of fear they had for the Lord and their dad when they cast Joseph into the pit and then lied about the situation to their father. Verse 19, he says, If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, 
But you, go and carry grain for the famine of your house and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And so they did. So the brothers agreed to this proposal of, of only holding one instead of nine and leaving one in custody while the other nine go to get the youngest brother, go to get Benjamin. Verse 21, then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us. Here we get an insight to what happened to Joseph while he was in the pit. And it's information that we get here that we don't get any other place in the record. While he was in that pit, Joseph knew his life was in danger. And he's crying out to his brothers. He's begging them to have mercy on him. He's pleading with them for his life. And they show him no mercy. Now, as their brothers are being treated unjustly for no apparent reason, their conscience takes them back to what they did to Joseph. And they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us. And we would not hear, therefore, this distress has come upon us. After 22 years, we see the power and the longevity of a guilty conscience. How do you get rid of guilt in your life? Guilt, someone once said, has a shelf life of a Twinkie. I mean, it lasts a long, long time. <laughs> you know what? People say time heals all things, but it's not true, right? It doesn't heal guilt. Things generally don't get better with time. Time does nothing with guilt other than allow you to stuff it down, to bury it deeper in your life under a lot of other stuff, a lot of other bad stuff in your life. As time goes by, your conscience gets hardened as you try to keep these things buried in your life. Satan wants to use guilt to condemn us and drive us away from the Lord. And honestly, when the enemy condemns us, most of the time, the things that he is saying is true. You know, oftentimes we hand him the, uh, the things to condemn us with. You know, the world will tell you that you have to learn to forgive yourself. And the church has picked up on that message and, and has taught it, begun to teach it. But that also isn't true. You know, that would be putting yourself in the place of God. And it's only God that can forgive sins. None of those are the way that we are to deal with guilt. We deal with guilt by confessing our sin. The Holy Spirit uses our guilt to convict us and to draw us to the Lord. And when we feel that conviction, we need to run to God and ask for forgiveness for the sins that we've committed against God and other people. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how we're to deal with sin. That's how we're to deal with guilt. We're to cast ourselves upon him. 
run to him. Let his blood bring the healing as it's shed upon our lives, washing over us. That's where healing comes from. And as we confess our sins to the Lord, then we're to go to those that we've offended and confess our sin to them. We're to ask them for forgiveness as we uh, bring light to the things we confess to God. We're to go to those people we've offended and ask them for forgiveness so that they can receive, you know, healing in their heart. That's how we're to deal with sin. Just look at how guilt has plagued these guys. For 22 years, at the first sign of something going wrong, they immediately attribute it to what they have done to Joseph, and they proclaim themselves guilty. It's all happening to us because of what we did to Joseph. We deceived our dad, and he's living with that pain that we've caused him. We are guilty, and that's why this is happening. Verse 22, and Reuben answered them saying, Did I not speak to you saying, Do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. Now, these guys are talking back and forth in Hebrew. You know, we're going to see in a verse or two that they don't know that Joseph can understand what they're saying. Joseph is learning a lot here about his brothers, right? He's learning that they feel terrible about what they did to him 22 years earlier. Joseph is learning that they're changed men. He's learning that they're not the heartless, God bless you, cold-hearted, callous men that they were 22 years earlier. God has worked in their lives and they feel terrible about what they've done. Joseph is also learning that Reuben didn't go along with the plan to sell him to say, into slavery. Reuben was absent at the time, probably caring for the flocks. And when he came back, he said, what have you guys done? And they said, we sold that dreamer for 20 pieces of silver. We didn't kill him. So shut up, Reuben. And Joseph realized realizes here that Reuben didn't have a hand in the events. And when Reuben says his blood is now required of us, Joseph realizes that they think he's dead. They thought, the boys thought, there's no way that Joseph could have been sold into slavery as a foreigner in Egypt, the way the Egyptians treated slaves at that time, they just thought that there's no way Joseph would have survived. They were responsible for the death of their brother. And in their wildest dreams, they couldn't have imagined that Joseph could have possibly survived. And in verse 23, it says, But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them uh, through an uh, interpreter. Uh, he could have spoken Hebrew to them, but he doesn't do that. And that shows us that Joseph is a very disciplined man. Joseph has two big questions on his mind, and he's not going to reveal himself until he learns what he needs to learn. So he just watches. He just observes and considers very carefully the things that he's learning, the things that he's hearing about uh, his brothers. And here are the two questions that are probably on his mind. 
one. What was the attitude of the ten brothers towards their younger brother, Benjamin? You know, are they treating him currently the way they treated me? And two, what's the attitude of these ten brothers towards their father? What he wants to figure out is if these guys are truly changed men or if he's just catching them on a good day. So he's going to have them jump through some hoops as, as he sees what's what. In verse 24, it says, He turned himself away from them and wept. The news of his father and his brother still being alive is just overwhelming to Joseph. And in light of all that Joseph has been through, seeing his brothers, what they have been going through, they've been through a lot too with his burden of guilt, Right? They've suffered. They've tormented. They've suffered for uh, 22 years with this guilt. And all of this is just overwhelming to Joseph. He's very emotional. He can't take it. He has to walk away and he just breaks down for a minute. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So why would he take Simeon? Well, because Simeon is the second oldest. Joseph just heard that Reuben, who was the oldest, confessed at not having any part in uh, selling Joseph into slavery. So he takes the next oldest and holds him responsible for uh, selling him into slavery. So he takes him captive. You know, it might also be because Simeon may have been the ringleader to grab Joseph and throw him in the pit and sell him, right? Simeon seems to be the cruelest of all the brothers. It was Simeon who took Levi and they went out and slaughtered all the men of Shechem. And verse 25, then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain to restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. He lets the other nine go and he orders his people to give them grain and, and to put their money back in their sacks. Joseph knew these guys would be back. I mean, there's at least five more years of famine. So he knows he's going to see these guys again. In verse 26, so they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened their sack to give their donkey feed at the encampment, he wants to you know, give his donkey something to eat, he saw his money. And there it was in the mouth of the sack. And so he said to his brothers, my money has been restored and there it is in my sack. Then his heart, their hearts failed them and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? Did you notice it? Did you see it? This is the first time that the brothers have ever mentioned God. There's no record of these guys ever mentioning the name of God until right now when the heat is being turned up in their lives. God will allow the heat in our lives to be turned up so that we'll think about him, so we'll turn to him. The more we resist that, like these guys, the worse God will allow it to get in our situation. They said, my money has been restored and there it is in my sack and their hearts failed them. And they were afraid saying to one another, 
What is this that God has done to us? These guys sold their brothers for 20 pieces of silver. Each one of them was very happy to split that money up and walk away with two pieces of silver. Now they don't want to have anything to do with money. You know what? They, the money now seems to be a curse to them. And they think God is getting them back when they receive this money. In fact, they're not right with God. The fact that they're not right with God, that they uh, haven't properly dealt with their sin and haven't received the forgiveness that God would offer them, it doesn't allow them to see the blessing that this actually is, right? What would you do if you left the grocery store with an SUV full of groceries and when you got home you saw the check you paid uh, with, for the groceries was in your bag? I mean, you'd praise the Lord. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Man, that's amazing. Isn't God good? You know, it doesn't make any sense that they see this thing as a terrible thing, right? I think they're thinking everything that has gone on with this Egyptian man, it just keeps getting weirder and weirder. And because of that, mixed with their guilt, mixed with their guilty conscience, they think, oh no, now that man is going to accuse us of stealing from him. And in verse 29, it says, They went to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man. Isn't it interesting uh, that they'll continue to refer to Joseph as the man? Right? They couldn't call him by his name before because they, the hatred that they had towards him. They just called him the dreamer. Now they don't refer to him by his name because they're afraid of him. They just refer to him as the man, right? Verse 30, the man who is Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we're honest men. We're not spies. We're 12 brothers, son of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, by this I will know you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your household and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me. So shall I know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you and you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they... Uh, and their father saw the bundle of money, they were afraid. Now, I can almost guarantee you that this is the first time that this crew sees a bundle of money in their sack, and they're afraid, right? These guys, they're a chip off the old block. I mean, they're deceivers and connivers and schemers, just like uh, their father, Jacob. But all of this scares them. It's just so very, very unusual. They went down to Egypt and were, they were just expecting things to go smoothly, just very ordinary, but it just keeps getting weirder and weirder and weirder. In verse 36, and Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. 
Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. It sounds like Jacob has been very suspicious of the boys in regards to Joseph. And now he just comes out and says it. I mean, he just lashes out and says, I don't know what you guys did with Joseph. Simeon's in prison now in Egypt. And you want, you want me to, to send Benjamin with you down there too? There's no way. That's never going to happen. And Jacob feels like everything is against him right now. That's how he feels of, of, about this situation. He sees it as completely hopeless. Everything is against me, he says. Now, I don't know about you guys, but everything is an awful lot to me, right? Everything is against me, he says. I've lost my oldest son of the wife, the love of my life. I worked 14 years for her. We were childless for so many years until God finally blesses us with a little boy. Now Simeon's lost in Egypt. And now you want to take my, listen, only other son I have, which my beloved wife Rachel gave me and Jacob. He thinks through these things and he says, everything's against me. Jacob is downcast and thinks God is against him. God is not against him. God has proven himself faithful and trustworthy in, in the past. Past. And you know what? In each one of our lives, that's true. God has proven himself faithful and trustworthy in the past. God has revealed himself to Jacob and told him that he would be with him. He's never going to leave him. He's going to bless him all the days of his life. And nothing has changed that. Jacob, just like us sometimes, Jacob needs to trust more deeply in the God that he has. Jacob thinks and feels that God is against him. Everything's against him, but it's not true. God is working something that Jacob could have never imagined or expected. In fact, it's going it's, it's to happen. Uh, it's going to be probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest blessing in Jacob's life. There's going to be a day coming very soon on the other side of this lack of perspective where Jacob is going to find himself blessed beyond all that he could ever ask or think. He'll come to see these events as one of the greatest events in his life. And if you're walking as an obedient Christian, nothing is working against you. God works everything together for our good. Everything for get together for the good in our lives. Even if the whole world gets together and tries to work all the evil they can against us, God would turn that around for the good in our lives. That's how God works in our lives. So maybe you're struggling with something. Maybe you, you're in a situation you feel like there's no hope. Maybe you're in a situation that, that seems like it's never going to come to an end. You can't see any light at the end of that tunnel. And that is assuming that there is an end of uh, that tunnel. Right? Maybe tonight... 
you may see that think that everything is getting worse and worse and you're tempted to think that it's never going to turn around. You know what? Don't believe it. God is doing something wonderful. It may be the hardest thing you'll ever go through. That may be absolutely true. But time will reveal God's plan, His wonderful providence, and His blessings unimaginable. And Reuben, he sees the emotion of his father, and Reuben spoke to his father saying, kill my two sons if I do not bring them back to you. Put him in my hands and I'll bring him back to you. Once again, Reuben, he's not really up for the task. I mean, he, his heart is to be a comfort, but sometimes it's better just to be there. You know what? Just to remain quiet. You don't always have to say something. You don't go to a grandfather and say, commit one of your sons to me. If I don't bring him back to you, you can kill two of your grandchildren too. You know what I mean? Reuben, do yourself a favor. Take the foot out of your mouth and just be quiet, right? Reuben's trying hard, but he's coming up short. Verse 38, and he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brothers. His brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Think about again what he's saying to the other sons, what they're hearing now, right? Jacob is saying that Simeon can rot down there in Egypt. Jacob says, I can't give you my son, Benjamin. He's my only son that's left to me. If something were to happen to him, it would kill me. I know I wouldn't survive it after all I've been through in life. And it doesn't sound like, like he's very concerned about Simeon, does it? <laughs> you know? But that's what he's saying. And we get the idea that Jacob is just bitter and pessimistic about everything at this point in life. So we've looked at the historical account of the events in this chapter, and we want to continue uh, quickly. We'll try to get through it real fast, continue to look at Joseph's life as a type of Christ. We've already seen so many types of Christ in Joseph's life. Joseph being exalted second to Pharaoh, receiving authority uh, to govern from Pharaoh, speaks of Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, receiving all authority from the Father. We saw Joseph as he rides by everyone, was to bow his knee to him. Again, a picture that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. And in this chapter, the pictures that we see of Jesus, they are primarily in regards to his dealing with the Jewish people. This is not, you know, what we're about, just time limited. Uh, it's not every picture that's in this chapter, so I encourage you to go back, reread, think through this chapter, and see what the Spirit would show you. But verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brother came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Joseph deals roughly with his brothers to see if there's a change of heart, to see if they've repented. Now, Psalm 32, verse 8, 9 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. 
Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, or else they'll not come near to you. The bit and bridle digs into the horse's gum. It's a, it's a, a, you know, a source of pain. And what this psalm tells us is God desires to direct us with his eyes. You know, you ever been someplace and you see your friend across the room and you just kind of like, you know, you, you know what they're saying. Come on over, let's talk, right? But God is willing to use the painful processes in life to get our attention. Here we see Joseph speaking roughly to his brothers to get their attention. It's during a seven-year period of famine that Joseph is revealed to his brothers in such a way that they acknowledge him as ruler over them. And God is going to use another seven-year period to get the Jews to recognize Jesus as their Messiah, as the one who rules over them. It's a picture of Jesus dealing with uh, his Jewish brethren in what is coming called uh, the times of Jacob tro Jacob's trouble. We call it the tribulation, a seven-year period coming upon the earth after the rapture of the church that the Lord will use the tribulation period, the difficult processes in life to deal with this people. He's going to use that time to get the Jews to repent and change their hearts towards Jesus the Messiah. God's not done with the Jewish people. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Verse 8 says, So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Jesus recognized the Jews as his people, but they didn't recognize Jesus as their king. Verse 10, And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servant has come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, no, but you've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you saying you are spies. In this manner, you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place until, unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you, you are spies. So they put them all in prison three days. Again, another picture of Jesus. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, Matthew 5, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Je uh, Joseph here is a picture of what Jesus taught. His brethren were not merciful to him and they are not receiving any mercy from Jesus, uh, Joseph. And again, that's exactly what Jesus said would happen in the judgment to come. Verse 18, Then Joseph said to them, The third day, do this and live, for I fear God. Jesus also spoke of God. He also spoke of Elohim and he told us what we had to do that we might live. Verse 19, if you're honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses, uh, for the famine of your houses. Now, do you see the change there? At first, it was nine of you stay and one go. Now it's one stay and nine go. Joseph said the first time all would stay in prison. 
but he recognizes that one man can't carry enough grain for the entire family of Israel. Here we see Joseph's love and concern for the nation of Israel, even though his brothers have rejected him and have not recognized him. And it's a picture of Jesus, how he cares for the Jewish people, even though they have not yet recognized him as their Messiah. He cares for them. He's not done with the, the nation of Israel. Verse 21, Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. When Joseph's brothers threw him in the pit, he cried out for mercy. He pleaded with them, but they wouldn't heed uh, him at all. And again, it's a picture of Jesus here. His brethren didn't throw him into the pit, but they gave him to, over to Gentiles to be nailed to a cross, and they blasphemed him, right? And they didn't hear, uh, heed anything that he said uh, when they saw him crying out in anguish of soul saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Saying, it is finished. Saying, Father, into your hands I've commit my spirit. The Jews paid no attention when he, they heard these cries of anguish. They said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear, therefore this distress has come upon us again. A picture of Jesus and the Jewish people here. How they rejected him. And that is the reason why the nation of Israel has gone through such distress. Jesus talked about how the nation would go through distress because of the rejection. How the, the, there would be a siege in, uh, in Jerusalem and, you know, the temple would be destroyed. You know, the New Testament speaks about the troubles and distress the Jews, Jewish people would endure through the centuries because they've rejected him as their Messiah. In verse 22, the Romans, uh, sorry, and Reuben answered them saying, did I speak to you saying, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen. Therefore, his blood is now required of, it, of us. We saw this picture before. Not all of Joseph's brothers uh, rejected him. Reuben wanted to save him. So too with Jesus, not all the Jews rejected him. But Reuben says, his blood is now required of us. Does that sound familiar at all? Matthew 27, when Pilate said that he found no fault in Jesus, the Jews kept crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate grabbed a basin of water. He washes his hands and, and he says, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And what did the Jews cry out at that time? His blood be on us and on our children. Verse 23, But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter, and he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. I mean, it almost doesn't need to be pointed out how Jesus wept over the nation of Israel as they rejected him, wept over Jerusalem. Here we see Joseph as a picture of one greater than Joseph, weeping over his brethren. Verse 25, Then Joseph gave 
a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. Isn't it interesting that Joseph had their money put back in their sacks, into their bags. They came to purchase grain so that they might survive, the grain that would give them life. They brought money to pay for it, but Joseph wouldn't allow it. You know, it's a picture of Jesus, how you're not able to buy the bread of life, right? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven, which gives eternal life, but you can't buy it. You can't purchase it. There's nothing you can bring in exchange for eternal life. It's a free gift. And here we see Joseph having nothing to do with his brothers paying for the grain. It was free. It couldn't be purchased. In verse 26, so they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed there. But as one of them opened their sacks to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? The boys, they're just bewildered here. What is this grain? This free grain, how is it possible? Again, it's a picture of, of uh, the Jews. They don't understand the free gift of salvation. In a similar way, when the Jews learn about the free gift of salvation, that the bread of life is free, they just, they don't understand it. They're bewildered by it. It's just so amazing to me to see these pictures of Jesus written for us here in the book of Genesis. I mean, how do you think they got there? You know, you think it's just an accident? No, of course it's not an accident. It's the Holy Spirit that has woven these pictures of the Messiah here in the fabric of Scripture. All of the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus, pointing towards the cross, you know? And uh, God has placed it there for us to be to discover and just to be amazed at, just to allow our hearts fall deeper in love with him, right? I love it. Let's just leave it there uh, for tonight. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll close things up here. Father God, again, so thankful, Lord, so very thankful for your provision for us, the bread of life. So thankful that eternal life can't be purchased. It can't be earned. There's nothing that we can bring in exchange for salvation. All of our righteousnesses, plural, the Bible says, are filthy rags before you. They're disgusting. They're gross. They're not worthy of you. Lord, you say the way to receive forgiveness of sins. The way to receive eternal life is by crying out to you, asking for forgiveness for our wrongs, telling you how sorry we are over the things that we've done, asking for forgiveness. You say that the man that comes to you, the one that comes to you in no ways 
you would cast out. We just need to come with humility. Lord, it's such a beautiful thing that salvation is something that's available to everyone. And it's only the pride that keeps us from being saved. It's only the pride that keeps us from bowing our knee and asking you for forgiveness that keeps us from being saved. Lord, I just pray for anybody now that's watching, Lord, that doesn't know you. I pray, Lord, you'd be moving on their heart even now as I speak. And you would be giving them the courage to say, Lord, I've sinned. Forgive me. I'm sorry. Come into my life. Cleanse me with the blood of Jesus. I believe you died for my sins. You took my penalty. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord, because I believe you've been raised from the dead. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the power to, to walk with you. You know, if you don't know Jesus and you pray a prayer like that from your heart, Jesus hears it. God the Father hears it and he's willing to forgive you right where you're at and make you a new creation. And if you've prayed a prayer like that, I encourage you, give me a call. Let's talk. Let's get a Bible in your hands. Let's answer any questions you may have. Lord, again, we're just so thankful for your word, so thankful for your grace. You're so good. You're so, so wonderful. We give you praise and glory, Jesus, in your name. Amen.